Out of respect for God's word, let us stand together and open our Bibles to Colossians, the third chapter. To maintain our context, let's go back and begin reading with verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that you not only open our minds to receive the truth of your word, but our hearts, that we might genuinely worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we ask that in the name of Christ, for his glory, we have come to seek to honor you with our worship. We pray that is the case this morning. Amen. Well, after a brief break last week with Dr. Binge, we return this morning to our study of God's Word where Paul, addressing the church, reminds us we are who we are by the grace of God, holy and beloved. That's verse 12. Putting to death, as he said, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, coveting, all forms of idolatry. Back in verse 5. Putting off anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. That's verses 8 and 9. You put that off and putting on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And wrapping all of that in a love that forgives and bears with one another. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Having the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's verse 15. We are very thankful. Very thankful. And then he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that mean? What does it mean, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Um, that, that's what's called um, hapax legomenon, meaning it's the only place in Scripture we find this exact expression. And so what does it mean? We, we, we see the word of the Lord. We see the word of God. We see the, the word of the Spirit. But this is the only place where you see the word of Christ. So what does that mean? Well, it's the word that Christ reveals. It's not only the word that saves, it's also the word that consumes. In oikeo. See the word there for dwell? In oikeo, it means to be at home. In other words, the way we think, decisions we make, they're all natural responses to the word of Christ that dwells in us richly. Uh, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He was talking about John Bunyan. Remember John Bunyan, the, the uh, pastor, author, 
who uh, wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was uh, being imprisoned for his faith. Spurgeon said of him, he says, you know, when you cut him, he just bleeds scripture. No matter what you did to Bunyan, his response was always governed by the word of Christ that dwelt in him. That's who he was. So as the word of Christ dwells richly, which means we don't use superficial cliches, we don't use religious phrases that make us sound Christian, but the word of Christ takes up residence in our soul. It's how we think. It's how we live. It's what we teach. And we have to teach. We have to teach. You know, when I became a Christian as a senior in high school, which is not a popular time to become a Christian, but um, when I did that, or when the Lord did that, that happened to be his timing, I didn't know that much. I really didn't, but I had a lot of questions. And I had to get my questions answered. And I could not learn fast enough. I was reading, I was studying, I had to know. And as that came pouring into me, as the word of Christ came pouring into me, I had to have an outlet. And so I asked, is there anybody I can teach what I'm learning? And they gave me a class of third, fourth, and fifth graders on Wednesday night. And I went in there and sat down with those children. I said, you know what? Here's what I'm learning. And I just passed it on to them. I didn't want to be like the Dead Sea. You know what I mean? The, the Dead Sea just receives and never gives out. That's why it's dead. Everything is dead in that sea. It has no outlet. Very different than when you go north to the Sea of Galilee. Man, the Sea of Galilee is beautiful. It's, it gets the runoff from all those mountains up there. And that's why the water is so fresh and clear. Because the water that comes pouring down fresh off those mountains comes into the Sea of Galilee and then goes right into the Jordan River that now goes south and blesses all of the people throughout the country. And that's the way we are. The word of Christ not only imparts wisdom to us, but it compels us to impart wisdom then to others. That which we're learning, we have to pass on. And not only do we teach, but we also admonish, we correct, we warn, we encourage. Because we love people now. We see them the way the Lord sees them. And so we're not doing this with a self-righteous attitude. We're not arrogant about it. You know, look how much I know. But this attitude of with all wisdom means we, we do this with appropriately. We teach and we correct appropriately. We don't scold people. We don't belittle people. We don't treat them as though they are beneath us. This impasse Sophia in all wisdom means we, we take this privilege that we have of where the Lord has poured his word into us. We now share it with others in a way that honors Christ, not draws attention to us. We don't toot our own horns. We have no reason to toot our own horns. But the word of Christ enriches our life in such a way that we can't help. We can't help but correct others when we see that they are believing that which is wrong or when we see that they are living in a way that is wrong. We want to help correct them to the praise, glory, and honor of the Lord because the word of Christ dwells in us richly. 
And as it does that individually, it impacts us collectively. And not only do we teach and admonish with all wisdom, but we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. You know, in 50 years of ministry, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of people who had legalistic mindsets. You know, they were really big on rule keeping. You've heard the old expression, you know, we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't go with girls who do, and all that stuff. That's that... That, that way of, of um, kind of pharisaically saying, look how holy and righteous I am. Really? Really? You're treating the church as no different than you do the Rotary Club. You think that, that your participation here provides you with entitlement. But those where the word of Christ dwells in them richly, out of an abundance of love like the Lord has for you, out of an abundance of love for others, you will teach, you will correct with gentleness, and you will sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts. In his commentary, Douglas Moo put it this way. He says these kind of build on one another. He says, when you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you will then teach and admonish with wisdom and you'll do it while you're giving praise to the Lord with gratitude in your hearts. In other words, as the word of Christ saturates your life, it saturates you. You bleed scripture. You teach. You correct for the good of others. And there is a melody of joy that just pours out of your heart to the Lord. Now, some people try to make a big issue out of what's the difference here between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, um, there's not a lot of difference, but let's see if we can determine what that is. The word psalms means to pluck. Did you know that? Psalms were were sung to the plucking of stringed instruments, like a harp. Uh, You see this back in uh, 1 Samuel 16, when David is soothing the spirit of King Saul, and he is playing music and singing to uh, to the use of a harp. Now, when we think of a harp, we think of those great big instruments that are uh, on, on stage. One of our young ladies here used to play the harp for us before she got married and moved to M- Michigan. And it was beautiful music, but that's not what they're talking about. It doesn't have to be one of those big instruments. The harp that David played was more like a lyre. It was a, a, a little handheld harp that had strings on it that you would play. And as he did that, he would sing psalms. Now, psalms in the New Testament meant singing scripture from the Psalter, uh, from the, the psalms, uh, like, like we did this morning, Psalm 42. We sang this morning, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O Lord. Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm, uh, Psalm 100, Enter his gates with thanksgiving in his courts, in his courts with praise. For the Lord is good, his love endures forever, his faithfulness continues through all generations. Um, Great is our Lord comes from Psalm 145. Praise ye the Lord comes from Psalm 146. So singing psalms to the Lord vertically 
was a part of the body of Christ, teaching, admonishing, and singing horizontally. Um, they, they, they sang hymns of, of, of praise, and as they did, they taught. They taught. They used those psalms to teach God's word. Uh, we see Christ. He sang a hymn with his disciples in the Last Supper, Mark 14. And so what is a hymn? Well, a, a hymn in the early church was a regular part of worship, according to 1 Corinthians 14. We, we see Paul and Silas, uh, while they're in a Philippian jail, are singing hymns in Acts 16. So what is a hymn? It's a song of praise. As a matter of fact, if you turn back a few pages to Colossians 1, if you look at verses 15 to 20, when the Holy Spirit gives that to the church through the Apostle Paul, the church went back and took those verses and put it to music, and they sang Colossians 1, 15 to 20 as a song, as a hymn. Same thing with the letter to the Philippian church. In Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, that was, made, that was set to music and made into a hymn. So, so psalms are Old Testament songs sung with stringed instruments. That's what psalm means, stringed instrument to pluck. Hymns are um, uh, songs, New Testament songs of praise. So what are spiritual songs? What are those? Well, those are melodies that spontaneously come forth at the prompting of the Holy Spirit to give testimony. So there's not a lot of difference here, but psalms are Old Testament songs of praise sung with instruments, stringed instruments. Hymns were New Testament songs of praise to bring glory to God, some from Old Testament, some that, were, that, were, uh, that came forth during the New Testament period. And spiritual songs are melodies, melodies that give personal testimony of God's goodness. And you know what? We see that throughout all of Scripture and throughout all of history. Um, just go through this with me real quickly. You remember Miriam, Moses' sister? What happens when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and they're crossing the Red Sea and they're headed towards the Promised Land? What happens? You remember? They burst forth in song. They're singing to the Lord, just a spontaneous outburst of praise. That's Exodus 15. In the book of Numbers, when the Lord provides food and water on a daily basis, what do the leaders do? It says in the book of Numbers that they, they, they sing of his goodness, just spontaneously sing of his goodness. In chapter 21, when David is victorious over the Philistines, remember what the women did? The women go before him singing God's praise in 1 Samuel 18. When Jehoshaphat goes to battle against the Moabites and the Ammonites, do you remember who led him into battle? It wasn't men with their weapons raised. It was a chorus that led with their voices raised. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. 2 Chronicles 20, 21. In the book of Ezra, at the return of Israel, remember when they're taken into captivity in, in Babylon and they're there for 70 years? When they come back, who is it that leads them? It's singers. The singers lead them back and come to lead the people in worship. Ezra 2, Ezra 3. 
A little while later, when Nehemiah goes back to build the walls around Jerusalem, and it's a very successful campaign, what happens? They burst forth in spiritual songs. They give testimony of the Lord's goodness. As a matter of fact, Israel at one time was divided into choirs led by the sons of Korah and Asaph. You ever seen a psalm that says this is by Asaph? Asaph was David's choir director. And they used those songs as a vital part for teaching and admonishing and praising as an expression of their love for the Lord. Matter of fact, the largest book in your Bible is the book of Psalms, 150 of them. 150. And they cover a thousand years. The oldest psalm in your Bible is Psalm 90 that was written by Moses for 1450 BC as they're coming out of, of uh, Egypt. The newest one is Psalm 126, written a thousand years later, 450 BC, as they are coming out of Babylon and returning after 70 years of captivity. During Ezra's day, they put together a hymnal. That's the first instance I know of where the hymnal was actually put together. They put together a hymnal for God's people to worship. Um, why does Christ lead the disciples in a song before they depart to the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you ever wonder about that? Why does it say that they, they were singing together? With the Passover, the Hallel, which in Hebrew means praise, the Hallel was a Jewish prayer. And you can read it in Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And what they did is they would sing, they would sing that prayer. These psalms celebrated the mercy of God who delivered them from bondage beneath the blood of a lamb without blemish, Passover. Book of Revelation says that angels will sing, worthy is the lamb who is slain. All with a heart for God will sing to the lamb, praise, honor, glory, and power forever and forever, Revelation 5. You know, singing is as much a part of our faith as good doctrine. And the reason I say that is because doctrine is meant to lead us to obedience. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is meant to lead us to worship. Um, your obedience without worship is sterile, is cold, is unacceptable to the Lord. Matter of fact, in 70 AD, when the Romans go in there to tear down the temple, did you realize that the singers and the musicians, they refused to step down. They continued to sing as they were being martyred. Uh, later, um, we have some historical records that uh, tell us that, that when they gathered Christians together and put them in the center of the Colosseum and would turn loose wild beasts on them for the entertainment of, uh, of the Romans, that those Christians would gather in the center and they would hold hands and they would sing, they would sing praises to the Lord because they were about to be joined with Christ again. That's how they died. Uh, as early as 111 AD, there are historical records that say that Christians could be heard early in the morning at sunrise throughout all of Rome singing praises to the Lord. 386 AD, 
You know, the guy that led um, uh, Augustine to faith. Remember Augustine, the city on the hill, great theologian back in the fourth century. The guy who led him to faith, Aurelius Ambrose, uh, not only, not only corrected the false teaching of a guy named Arius, but he instituted in the churches in Milan the singing of hymns that were meant to teach and were meant to admonish the church to embrace right doctrine. Uh, if you just kind of fast forward on through history here a little, little quicker, uh, 757 AD, there was a guy named Charles Martel. I hope you know who that is because he's the reason many of you are not Muslim today. He's the one who stopped Islam from coming into to Europe in the eighth century. And uh, Charles Martel, the hammer, had a son named Pippin. And uh, he was known as Pippin the Short. And uh, Pippin was given a gift by the emperor, and the gift was an organ. And he donated that organ to the church. And the reason was it was meant to harmonize spiritual songs. And just as a little footnote here, this is, uh, has nothing to do with the message itself, but uh, Pippin the Short had a son. Do you remember who that was? Charlemagne, the one who was uh, christened the Holy Roman Emperor in 800 AD on Christmas Day. It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't, he wasn't an emperor, but nevertheless, he was just a muscle of the church, but that's just a little historical footnote. In the 16th century, Martin Luther put orthodox theology to music. That's why he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. That is a paraphrase of Psalm 46, and it became the battle hymn of the Reformation. And while many of the Puritans didn't sing hymns as much as they sang psalms, there was a young pastor's son. They named him Isaac. Isaac Watts, who felt like the singing within the church was not as heartfelt as it ought to be. And so he began to write songs for the first time in stanzas, providing notes so that members of the church could sing bass, alto, tenor, soprano, and therefore. And, and the church could harmonize like a choir before the Lord. Isaac Watts is the one who did that. And after him came a guy named Charles Wesley, who wrote thousands of hymns, best remembered for Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, and Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Did you know that most of the songs in the church hymnals today were written during the first Great Awakening of the 1700s and the second Great Awakening of the 1800s and into the early 1900s because that's really the last time. Those were revivals. That's the last time this country's seen a revival. The last revival in this country was in 1857. It's called the Layman's Prayer Revival that was led by Jeremiah Lanfear. We haven't had a revival since then. And that was the revival that prepared this nation for the Civil War. And those hymns came out of those periods. And I've never met a genuine, significant Christian, never, who had a cold heart when it came to worship. Now, there are Christians who sing off-key as bad as I do. Tyler Johnson, one of our elders, says that he can sing as bad as I can. And I don't know if that's true or not because... Tyler and I, neither one will let anybody else hear us sing. That's the reason I'm in the back. When, we, when, we're, when we're singing, when you're singing, you sound magnificent. I'm back there, I'm facing the wall so that only I hear me sing, okay? Because I think I sound great. 
You don't think that. Um, in the shower, I'm terrific. In my car, I'm terrific. Um, actually, here I'm terrific. It's just that Kevin and others have said, I'm not terrific. But you know what? I make a joyful noise. And so does Tyler. We make a joyful noise. Musically, I can't carry a tune. But as a Christian, I also can't love the Lord without singing his praises. I can't do it. Christian truth is not meant to be sterile. We are people of worship. That's the reason my favorite Sunday of the year is at Christmas. If you're in town and you don't come here on Christmas Day, you're going to miss what I think is a great blessing. Because we're going to sing 10, 12, 14 songs, the whole service. I give a brief history of each of the songs to, to increase your understanding and appreciation for why we as Christians lift our voices in praise to celebrate the incarnation. But the whole service, I mean, it's one of the most meaningful services we have all year. I love it. Because singing is not a preliminary to worship. It is primary. You know, the word worship is an abbreviation for the Anglo-Saxon word for worth-ship. Worth-ship. It has to do with the worth of the one we're worshiping. You know, with the advent of the internet, what would you say to someone that you invited to come and worship with you here at Wellington. And they said, hey, you know what? I'll, I'll catch the service online. And, and I'll listen to the sermon here in the comfort of my PJs sitting at the kitchen table while I'm uh, drinking coffee and eating donuts. What would you say to them? You know, for those who are out of town or for those who are homesick, that might be their only option. And we're glad that they, that they are joining with us this morning. But what would you say to those who could be here and they're not. Why, why do you think we have families that will drive 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 minutes together for worship here when they could listen online? Well, why do you think this young couple from Cynthiana is here? Why do you think we have another couple that's from Irvine? Why do you think we have families coming from Lancaster, Richmond, Harrodsburg. Why is that? Why is that? We gather with purpose as the body of Christ to worship the one who is worthy. You know, when the Lord delivered his people from bondage, he gave instructions about building a tabernacle. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. It's where God's people were to rendezvous with him and he would make his presence known. It was in the Holy of Holies, his Shekinah glory. And that's where they were to come together. As Christians, before we witness, before we serve, we are to worship. We are to worship the one who is worthy. That is why the Apostle Paul says, those who have the word of Christ dwell in them richly, teach, admonish, and sing. Obedience and orthodoxy come out of hearts that worship in spirit and truth. Let me ask you this. If your child, many of you have children, if your child was blind 
and somebody donated their eyes that your child might see. Or if your child's kidney was bad and somebody donated a kidney that your child might live, what would you say to them? Would you walk up to them and give them a nice, cold, sterile handshake and say, thank you? Or would your eyes well up with tears? Would your voice crack with emotion as you try to find the right words to say thank you? Thank you for what you did for my child whom I love. What about the Lord who's removed the scales from your eyes that you might see? You know, you look at the culture out there. and Some of you talk about how bad the culture is. There go you, but for the grace of God. There go you, but for the grace of God. And so, how can you not come in and well up with emotion when you sing praises to the one who is worthy? We can't have orthodoxy without adoration. Otherwise, our obedience will border on legalism and result in self-righteousness. If our service isn't the result of heartfelt appreciation, then we cannot worship in spirit and in truth. We can't do it. Remember what Christ said was the greatest commandment? They asked him, what is the greatest commandment? Christ says to love the Lord thy God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your spirit, your strength. In John 4, uh, you'll remember Christ is there in Sychar at the, at the well with this uh, immoral lady, a Samaritan, a half-breed. She was half-Jew, half-Assyrian. And uh, he said, uh, if you only knew, I'd give you water whereby you'd never thirst again. And she said, really? Really? And uh, she said, I'd like to have that. And he said, good, good. Go get your husband. And she said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, oh, you said that very well. You've had five. The guy you're living with not your husband. I understand that. She said, I perceive you're a prophet. A prophet. Yeah. How would you know that? You know, our fathers worship here on this mountain. Garrison. You Jews say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. You know, you tell, tell me, I've always wondered about this. Where, where are we supposed to worship? Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed that when you get down to sin and repentance, people always want to change the subject? You know, I perceive you're a prophet. I have a question that I've always that's always bugged me. I, I'd like to know where is it we're supposed to worship? You know, when you talk about sin, everybody wants to know uh, about, well, what about that heathen in Africa? Or, or, or what about uh, the, the babies when they die? Do they, do they go to heaven? And Christ says, you're not in Africa and you're not a baby. Let's talk about where you are. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father seeks such people to worship him. The place of worship is the body of Christ where the Holy Spirit indwells his people. And the word of Christ dwells richly.
You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to Rome or Mecca or Salt Lake City or any place else. You don't have to kneel or stand or face the east. It's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of your heart. You can't worship the Lord in spirit and truth. You can't do it after you've been verbally abusive to your spouse. You can't worship the Lord in, in spirit and truth after you've been dishonest in your business. You can't worship him in spirit and truth after you have, have used filthy language all week. You can't worship him in spirit and truth after living immorally as an act of rebellion to his will and his word. That kind of worship is just not acceptable because that kind of heart is not suitable to worship a holy God. Formality and duplicity are not satisfactory. Where his word dwells richly, there's teaching, there's admonishing with wisdom, and there is singing with thanksgiving. Those are all natural outpouring, all natural outpouring of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Have you ever heard of a hymn written to self-righteousness? Ever? Amazing goodness, how sweet the sound of how I delivered myself. Look at how wonderful I am. It just doesn't sound right. So where are the great hymns of legalism? Where are the great hymns of liberalism? Tell me, why do the cults not sing? Why do Buddhists grunt, moan, and chant? Why does Islam not sing but Christians do? Why is that? Remember back... uh, a couple of years ago when the atheists decided they were going to mock uh, what they considered to be Christianity, at least the secret sensitive form of Christianity. And so they began to rent buildings and they began to gather in hundreds, if not thousands of people on Sunday morning. And they began to, to sing and to shout and to praise and so forth. The fact that there is no God. Why did that come to an end? Why did that fizzle out? Why did that not last? Because they have nothing to sing about. They have nothing to celebrate. The truth about our sinfulness and the truth about God's mercy leads us to come together as the body of Christ to teach, to admonish with all wisdom, and to sing psalms hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts because he alone is worthy. Daniel Webster Whittle, wounded at Vicksburg, went with Tecumseh Sherman, by the way, in the march to the sea. He wrote 200 hymns after that. This one I love. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know this, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not how this saving faith to me did he impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. 
I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, or weary days or golden days before His face I see. I know not when my Lord may come, at night or noonday fair, nor if I walk the veil with Him or meet Him in the air. But here's what I know. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. A hymn written out of the scriptures of the New Testament. Charles Gabriel adds, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. If you have any questions, um, you can go to the Connect Table, as we usually say. There's also a room over here that uh, we've made available. It's right across from the uh, women's uh, restroom. Uh, there's, a, there's a little window there you can see with the shades and light and so forth. If you need prayer or you need something you'd like to discuss, there will be somebody in there who will be glad to meet with you and uh, be glad to help in any way possible. I'll be glad to meet with you in my study this week. Uh, so feel free to, to come and see me as well. But I hope that as you come in here next Sunday, you're prepared to lift your voices in praise. If you can't sing, come join me in the back corner and we will face the wall together. Okay? Let's stand. Lord, I pray that you draw those who do not know you, have never experienced the magnificence of your goodness, mercy, grace. Lord, I pray that you would draw them this morning to the prayer room. Those that have questions, uh, Lord, I pray you would draw them to the table in the back. And to those that have more extensive issues and really wanting to know how to know you and to love you and to serve you and to worship you, Lord, I pray that you will draw them to my study this week and give me the wisdom that I need to, to help them in every way possible. And I pray, Lord, that each week as we gather in here, to lift our voices in praise, to make a joyful noise, some who will harmonize and others who will be slightly out of tune. I pray, Lord, that we would do so in a way that truly honors you who are worthy. And I pray, Lord, that our singing is always orthodox so that it will teach and admonish and lift up and encourage as the word of Christ dwells in us richly that we would be your people called by your name who would worship you in spirit and truth. For it's in Christ that we ask it. Amen.